Welcome to Quad Life. I'm your host, Brian Bell. On today's show, John Chernesky. John is a consumer engagement lead at the Praxis Spinal Cord Institute in Vancouver, Canada. He has over 25 years of lived experience of spinal cord injury since being paralyzed in a car crash in 1993. John has a passion for SCI research and has participated in dozens of research studies. He works closely with individuals living with SCI, their families and friends, consumer-focused community organizations, and advocacy groups to ensure research is addressing their priorities. His strong connection to the SCI community brings local, national, and international consumer perspective to the SCI research field. He's recognized as a leader in the engagement and integrated knowledge translation and has advised many research funding agencies on their engagement policies and has presented on these subjects to researchers, clinicians, and consumers around the world. John, describe me your perfect stake. The perfect stake is first things first, you got to start with the right cuts. If you buy cheap meat, you're going to have a horrible time. So spend, spend the money to get a good steak. And then it's perfect when all you got on there is a bit of salt and a bit of pepper. You don't need no Montreal steak sauce. You don't need no extra seasonings or any of that stuff. Just salt and pepper, grilled to perfection, a little bit crispy charred on the outside, juicy and tender on the inside. And it just melts in your mouth like the most tender beef in the world. It's already melting in my, melting in my mouth. Did I not make a steak for you? Were you not? I'm trying to remember. You were here a while. Yeah, remember, remember you made a steak for me and I uh, I couldn't eat very much. Oh, yeah, that's right. Your dietary constraints. Yeah. Uh, do you ever use a smoker? No, I don't. I've been thinking about it, but uh, it's never, never got one, never gotten around to it. Are you a fair weather barbecuer? Hell no. I'm fucking yeah, barbecuing oh no. in the snow. No oh. damn way. Oh, yeah. No, a barbecue gets, like, I'm sure if there was like, you know, on a boat where they don't have like the mileage, they have the hour meter that uh, tracks how many hours you've been running the boat for. Okay. If I had one of those on my barbecue, it would, it would have a lot, a lot of hours on it. Well, maybe that's a thing. You could, uh, how many hours logged barbecuing? Yeah, never enough. How'd you get involved with uh, Praxis? How did I get involved with Praxis? So um, I used to work for Bell Media, so CTV, television, uh, as well as some of the radio um, stations there downtown Vancouver on Robson and Burrard. Uh, and I found out about the Blessing Spinal Cord Center, and I would go there and be involved in research. And then they had acquired some equipment to set up a gym there. Uh, and so I, I provided some insight and perspective on them as they set up the what's now known as the Park Gym, the Physical Activity Research Center you may have heard of. Um, and I just sort of became a fixture around there. It was, it was close. I'd go there to the gym, you know, after work, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I participated in a lot of studies and got to know a lot of the people and sort of, you know, found my way into things. Uh, and then Jocelyn Maffin, who I think you know, she works in Spinal Cord Injury BC, she reached oh, yeah. out to me and said that, uh, you know, she worked uh, at the organization, the Institute, which at that time was called the Rickhansen Institute. 
and said, hey, we have this advisory committee for, for our organization for people with spinal cord injuries. I'd like it if you uh, could be a part of it. And I said, hey, that sounds fantastic. I'd like to learn more and, and get to know it a bit. So uh, I did. I signed up on their consumer advisory committee and, you know, got to know a little bit more about the organization. Uh, and at a point not too far after that, Jocelyn uh, moved on to uh, a new role and then now she's working at Spinal Cord Injury BC. But needless to say, um, the, the position that she was doing there uh, was vacant and uh, they needed somebody to fill it. So I applied and uh, yeah, they took a chance on me and, and it's been an amazing experience ever since. Wow, very cool. I think of all, I think all of us in the SCI community can agree that being directly involved with research that is about our lives is important. And I know this is a focus for Praxis. Are you finding that the research community is receptive and adoptive to having people with SCI directly involved in the R&D process? It's a really, really good question, Brian. Um, if you asked me that question when I first started five years ago, my answer would be no. It was definitely not something that a lot of researchers and people working in this field embraced. Um, I think there's that traditional hierarchy, um, similar to like when you go to see the doctor, you know, there's, there's a medical professional and they're, they're a doctor, they, they know everything. And what do you know? You're just a lowly patient. You, you do as the doctor tells you. But maybe about 15 years ago, this idea of what they call patient-centered care started to emerge, where they started to realize that people living with chronic health conditions probably knew a fair amount about living with that health condition and they could be a voice in their own health decision-making processes. And so that hierarchy of the doctor being at the top and the patient being far down below started to be challenged where you started to get patient experts, people who knew about living with this health condition and they could help to inform their own care and, and the way that care was delivered. Um, research caught onto this a little bit later uh, maybe about seven years ago, give or take, um, CIHR, which is the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the, the biggest health re research funder in Canada, they created what they call their strategy for patient-oriented research. And what that plan was, was to find ways to get people living with chronic health conditions involved in research as co-creators of new knowledge. Uh, and so I started a praxis about five years ago some people had heard of it, but it hadn't been readily adopted, you know, and, and you have to remember that researchers are, are brilliant, brilliant people. And, and the ones working in spinal cord injury are dedicating their lives and their careers to making our lives better. And the thing is, very, very few of them actually have spinal cord injuries. And quite a few of them have never even met a person with a spinal cord injury. So as much as they understand spinal cord injury in theory, you know, that real world experience of living with a spinal cord injury 24 hours a day, seven days a week is something that, that they don't have, you know, and research is never done in isolation. It's never done. It's, research is never done by a single individual. It's always done in teams. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes research teams will be created, bringing in various types of expertise that are needed to answer the question they're trying to ask. So a perfect example of this would be, you know, say you're, you're a researcher and you decide you want to design the world's greatest wheelchair. So you go, okay, so what are we going to do? We're going to put a team together. 
So who's going to be on my team? Well, I'm going to bring in an occupational therapist because, you know, they're the ones that prescribe these devices and they, they know them the best. I'm going to bring in a physiotherapist because they understand human kinesiology and, and movement. Uh, I'm going to bring in an engineer to help me come up with the design. Maybe somebody who understands metals and materials and manufacturing processes. Maybe some, you know, young up-and-coming researchers to actually do the legwork and, and do all the, the crunching of the numbers that, that needs to be done. But the one person who used to not be a part of that team is the person who sits in the wheelchair every day, you know, and, and it just makes no sense. When you think about, you know, design of new products and, and services and things like that, I always say to people, you know, you think about an Apple iPhone, you know, do you think Apple would ever come up with a new iPhone without consulting with potential users thoroughly? Mm -hmm. Never. They'd go out of business. If they just designed what they thought was the best and never asked anybody who was going to use it, it would never get adopted. It would never get used in the real world. And that's the way that research had been done for years and years and years, where researchers came up with questions that they thought mattered uh, and came up with designs that they thought would work. And then when they created them, they would come to the people that were designed to use them and say, look at this great thing I created. Isn't it awesome? And people would say, well, yeah, it's, it's really quite cool, but it doesn't really meet the needs that I have. Because people that were living with the health condition, my spinal cord injury, weren't involved in the process. So now I would say five years down the road, more and more, it's becoming readily adopted. I think researchers and, and the entire research ecosystem is starting to recognize the value added of bringing people with spinal cord injuries into their work from the get-go and meaningfully engaging with them throughout the entire research process. So are the, are the researchers actively seeking out people with SCI or do you have to sort of insert yourself into that particular process? Uh, another really good question, Brian. Um, it's a bit of both. Um, again, it's sort of driven by a, a supply and a demand equation, right? So if I just stood on my soapbox or sat on my soapbox and told researchers, you need to do this, some of them might see the value in it, but I suspect a lot of them would be like, yeah, whatever, John, not interested. But the demand has started to be created because now research funders like Praxis, like CIHR, like the Department of Defense in the United States and other funding organizations around the world are starting to demand that research have a person with lived experience included in these research teams. Um, and so in order to secure funding, which funders or researchers require in order to do their work, they need to engage with people living with spinal cord injuries. Uh, the problem there is that it can lead to tokenism, where funders are requiring it, so researchers need to do it. So they reach out to whichever person with a spinal cord injury that they happen to know or can find some way and say, hey, look at this great research I want to do. Uh, here, sign on this that says you're going to be part of my team and then I can get my funding. And then that's it, they never hear back from them. You know, when I mentioned earlier about meaningful engagement, we practice a model that we call integrated knowledge translation or IKT. And that's the idea that you engage with the right research users at the right time throughout the entire research process. So when I say the right research user, I don't say a person with a spinal cord injury, but 
thinking about who's going to use the knowledge that you create. Oftentimes that is a person with a spinal cord injury, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, and then I also talk about engaging them at the right time. So, you know, I always say engage early and engage often. And I think that before you even decide what the research question is going to be, you should talk to people that are going to be using that knowledge, potentially people with spinal cord injury, and ask them, am I asking the right question? Does this even matter? Am I, am I shaping it the right way? And figure out what that question is and work together with people. Then you can go throughout the entire research process of you know, securing funding, designing a research protocol, conducting that research, analyzing the data and figuring out what it actually means, and then going ahead and trying to share that information widely and hopefully lead towards implementation and application of that knowledge so that it can actually impact the people whose lives it was intended to impact. Do you think researchers are getting a wide enough cross-section of people involved? Well, this is what I was saying earlier where I sort of embedded myself into the organization praxis. I saw an opportunity to participate in research at the Blessed Spinal Cord Center. A lot of it was I-cord-based research. And I built up my knowledge of how research worked. I built up my understanding of what it means to live with a spinal cord injury, not just from a personal perspective, but from the research perspective and the clinical perspective. And that sort of built up my knowledge understanding, my, my, my knowledge base, so that when I was asked to be a part of it, I had that fundamental understanding of research processes and things like that. Um, and that's one of the challenges we have, is trying to build up the skills of people with spinal cord injury so that they can make a meaningful contribution, so that we can avoid that tokenism. Um, there's a lot of organizations that are helping to bring people together and recruit them and bring them into research. Um, you know, Spinal Cord Injury BC is a great organization, um, and they recruit a lot of people to participate in research studies as research subjects. Um, but they also work very closely with a lot of researchers as an organization. You know, their director, Chris McBride, is a brilliant man, a former uh, researcher himself. So he understands it, and, and he really does try to practice this integrated knowledge translation model as well. Um, there's tons of opportunities. You know, doors to, to get involved are open that were never open before. Um, you can join organizations like NASCIC, the North American SCI Consortium, which really does facilitate this team-building process where researchers will go to them and say, hey, I got this research project I want to work on. I want you guys to work on it with me. And NASCIC, which has membership right across North America, will reach out to their member organizations and individuals and say, hey, this researcher in Kentucky or Toronto or Los Angeles wants to do this research project and they want a bunch of people with spinal cord injuries to be a part of it. Is there anybody in our network that wants to join in? And if you do, you let them know and you tell them not just the experiences you have as a person with a spinal cord injury, but why this particular area of research matters to you. And potentially you might have some secondary skill sets outside of just having that lived experience that can add value to this work. So there's more and more ways to get involved. Um, and we're, we're trying to not just establish them, but to nurture them and help them grow. Very cool. The majority of SCI research is done in major city centers. Are rural people with SCI being included or? That's, man, you got some good questions, Brian. That is another big challenge. And I think 
you know, people talk about this pandemic we're going through right now and all the, the negative consequences of it. But I would argue that one of the big positives is how we're meeting right now over Zoom. You know, you're you're up north in, in what, Prince George, I believe? No, and, I'm in the 100 Mile House. Oh, 100 Mile, sorry. My, my geo, BC geography is not the greatest. Um, and I'm down here in North Vancouver and we're communicating like we're in the same room. And so that I think is one of the great benefits of this pandemic is that it has made our world even smaller. And we've realized we can do work remotely, that we can connect remotely. And a lot of the work that's done in research, it's, it's not always hands-on. A lot of it is done in discussion and planning and making sure we've got all our, our I's dotted and our T's crossed. And that can be done remotely. So yeah, I, I've reached out to lots of people that live in rural and remote areas to get them involved in some of the work that we do. And I don't see any reason why it would be a significant barrier. You know, potentially it could if you needed to be a bit of hands-on stuff, but you know, if you need to, to send a, a device to somebody, you can always call Canada Post or UPS and they can send it around the world pretty rapidly. So I don't see it as a major barrier. So do you see this sort of becoming a, a, a fully global thing? So like people in the South as well will, will be included? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this morning I woke up and I don't know about you, but the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, I roll over and I grab my phone and I take a look to see how many emails I got overnight. Um, my, my email inbox gets pretty full. And I looked and I was surprised I only had five emails that I woke up to, which to me is, is very rare. Usually it's a dozen, 20 emails every morning. Um, but the neat thing was, is I got an email from a fellow I know in India. I got another one from an organization based in Thailand. Uh, I got an email from a group based out of the UK and another one from my friend down in the United States who is leading a global consumer effort. Um, Dr. Kim Anderson, who if you haven't heard of her, she is an amazing human being. Check her out. Um, she's published some amazing research and she's an all Maybe I can interview her. I would love to connect you with her. She is a brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, but it just really dawned on me how global this is. You know, you gotta remember spinal cord injury in the grand scheme of things is a very rare condition. You know, it only affects about 86,000 people in Canada, which, you know, when you, when you talk about it, it sounds like a big number, but compared to cancer, heart disease, you know, it, it's, it's, almost, it's almost minuscule. And so in order to, you know, and, and again, I'm sure you know, no two spinal cord injuries are the same, they're all different. Yeah. So if we're gonna design clinical trials, to bring forward curative interventions to try to improve the lives of people with spinal cord injuries, we're gonna need a lot of people to be participating in these trials. And if we try to do it locally in one small region or one province or state or even in one country, it's not gonna work. We need to have a concerted global effort to move the needle on these things. And now with the fantastic advent of, of information technology, man, it, it's becoming more realistic than it ever was. How accessible is new technology to people with SCI when many are living below the poverty line with little or no access to all but the basics? Damn. Yeah, that's, that's a, a major reality of this world we live in. You know, I think in Canada, you know, I speak to people all around the world, as I just said, and I don't think people realize just how good we have it in Canada. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would argue with me with, about that, but 
Um, I'll, I'll counter with the alternative. You know, I, I know a lot of people living with spinal cord injuries in Africa. Um, and in Africa, there is no rehabilitation. There is no safety net. There's no, no equipment provided. You know, they have some pretty good surgeons there that can manage your spinal cord injury acutely. But, you know, beyond that, you're on your own. You know, getting, a, getting equipment, getting anything, it's, you've got nothing. You know, you, you look in parts of Asia, uh, it's, it's the same. You know, so here we are really quite lucky with our, our social Medicare system and the provisions we have. Um, even talking to, to my friends down in the United States, it can be a harrowing experience there. Um, so, you know, framing that with the fact that we are quite lucky to be where we are. Um, there is challenges in making sure that these new technologies, these new innovations are available to everyone. And so in our organization, one of the key sort of programs that we run is what we call our commercialization program. And the idea behind that is most research, the end result of it is a journal publication. It's an idea that never gets taken up, that never gets adopted, that never becomes a technology or an intervention that's available to people. And the commercialization program tries to help take these researchers out of the lab and into the boardroom and help them to accelerate these ideas, these technologies, these therapies, so that they actually become available to the people that they're trying to be available to. Um, and one of the key aspects of that, obviously you need to get regulatory approval from organizations like Health Canada or the FDA, but you also have to figure out who's gonna pay for it. You know, people with disabilities, unemployment rates are hovering around 70%. So disposable income is, is pretty limited. You know, so the wheelchair I'm sitting in costs $20,000 and I've got a Baytech front drive that costs another 12,000, it's $31,000. There's no way I could have paid for that myself. Luckily enough, I've got coverage through my employer and the Pacific Blue Cross. My health insurer said that they'd pay for it, you know, a bit of, bit of back and forth before we finally got them to agree that it was necessary, but thankfully they, they did and they paid for it. Um, you know, it, if you're going to create a new product, it needs to be covered by Medicare, by the insurers, by ICBC, by WorkSafe, down in the States by the centers of Medicare and Medicaid. And you need to think about that process really early on in your development cycle, because if you get to the end and you go, Oh, now who's going to pay for it? Well, I guess just people with spinal cord injury, they got lots of money, right? Well, some of us do, if you had a good insurable accident, but I would, I would say that the vast majority do not. So making sure that these new devices or technologies will be covered by medical providers or, or medical insurance providers is, is absolutely key to the work that we do. So right from, uh, from concept to reality to uh, in the hands of the user, sort of, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So tomorrow, actually, no, tomorrow, Wednesday, we are launching our incubate program. I don't know if you've ever heard of what an incubator or an accelerator is. Um, it's a really standard tool in the commercialization process and they're, happen all, they're all around the world. So tech startups and you know, things like that, they have these two phases. So an incubate is an early phase for people that are sort of pre-prototype that are just trying to, they've got an idea, but they're not really sure what it's gonna look like. Um, and an accelerate is people that are a little bit further down the line. They've got a prototype, 
but they want to refine it. They want to make it more into a finished product. So we had our accelerate earlier in the year. We're having our incubate now. And if there's anybody listening that wants to get involved, go to our website. And if you've got an idea you think would be good for these programs, feel free to submit them. There's a cash award for companies that get in. And then you get hands-on um, guidance and advice from a host of experts throughout our network, uh, including researchers, clinicians, commercialization, regulatory, reimbursement. But first and foremost is that lived experience. So uh, at Praxis, we have five individuals living with spinal cord injury that work on our consumer team. Um, as well, we always reach out to our networks. We've got a, a pretty substantial network right across the country and around the world. Um, and we bring people in with lived experience, people who have relevant lived experience to the intervention these companies are trying to solve. And we help to facilitate that discussion to ensure that once they've completed the program, they have a really clear understanding of exactly how their product can solve the problem that people are dealing with and make sure that it accurately solves that problem. Kind of a dragon's den. Exactly like that. Um, but we are the first and only one in the world that I'm aware of that's specific to spinal cord injury. That brings that spinal cord injury expertise and connects these innovators with it. When I peruse the uh, Praxis website, there seemed to be a large emphasis on cure. How important is the cure to you? <laughs> well, first and foremost, I'm going to argue with you. There is no the cure. I don't, I don't think that there is the cure. I don't think anybody's going to create a magic wand that they're going to wave over your spinal cord and it's going to be exactly like it was before the moment before you were injured. That's I, what they told me. They told me when I was in GF Strong. Well, that was a long time ago, Brian. I think thoughts have evolved and <laughs> better understanding now. Oh, I, what I think of are cures. You know, curative interventions. And to me, cures to spinal cord injury are anything that is going to make our functional abilities better or reduce the chances of us having secondary complications. So if I can come up with a way to ensure that you're never going to have a pressure injury or you're never going to have a UTI or your bowels are going to work perfectly whenever you want them every single time, I see that as a cure. You know, I think if I can make my blood pressure not bounce up and down like a yo-yo all day long, that's a cure. I think if I can get my hand to work so I can play the guitar or play the piano or you know, pet my cat a bit better, that's a cure. Um, there is some very exciting stuff in the pipeline. Um, one of the areas that I'm quite interested in is an area called spinal cord stimulation. Wondering, have you, have you heard much about this before? Um, not a lot about it, but I, I feel like I've something I've always kind of imagined, like I always call it like putting jumper cables between your, your brain and the rest of you, where the damage in your spinal cord is and, and jumper are jumping across the jumper cable. I think of it more like an amplifier. Okay. So, you know, as they, you know, every, I always say to people whenever I, I do talks, particularly to people that are unfamiliar with spinal cord injury, you know, I ask them, have you ever heard of somebody severing their spinal cord? And if you have, raise your hand. And then I tell them, well, nobody actually really severs their spinal cord or very few people have actually severed their spinal cord. You know, to sever your spinal cord would mean that something actually transects it, cuts it in half. 
Yeah. By far and away, the vast majority, I don't know the exact data on it, but I, I pause to say probably above 98% are what we call contusion injuries, where there's some sort of an impact, a crash, a fall, a dive, um, some sort of other impact that causes a bruising to the spinal cord. The, the, the spinal column gets broken and there's a bruising to the spinal cord and that bruising causes an inflammatory response and the circulation gets restricted and blood can't flow in, blood can't flow out and those cells die. And once they die, they never regenerate. But the thing is, I have yet to see an image of a spinal cord that didn't have some sparing of tissue. Still connected. Even if there's a big scar right down the middle from where it was damaged, there's still some spared neurons that are connected between the brain and the rest of the body. The problem is if there's not enough of them, there's not going to be any functional capability for the individual to move or sense anything below the level of injury. You know, now, you know, I think back to my injury in 1993, I have a, a very incomplete injury. I can move one leg and my other hand actually moves quite good. Not normal, but quite good. When I was injured, there were very, very few people that had injuries like mine. Almost all of them were complete injuries where there was no movement below the level um, that they were injured. Now, the vast majority are incomplete injuries. 75, 76% of injuries are incomplete because we've gotten better through research. We have better acute care. We have those first responders know what to do. They, they're getting better at that. They get them to hospitals better. They're doing the surgery is quicker. They're monitoring the blood pressure in the spinal cord to make sure that the blood flows in and out and that those cells don't die. But one of the areas that they're trying to explore and trying to uh, see if they can get a lot of recovery from is what we call spinal cord stimulation, where they basically put an electrical or a magnetic field over the spinal cord to very much, as you say, try to amplify those signals so that those dormant pathways, those neural connections, that tissue sparing that currently isn't available to actively create movement or sensation, if you amplify that signal a bit, maybe it will be. And it's quite promising. Um, quite a few people have undergone this either through what they call transcutaneous, where it's done over the skin, or epidural, where it's an implanted device. And there's been some huge recovery. A lot of people have gotten some movement. Um, but even more exciting is a lot of people have regained autonomic functions. So blood pressure regulation, bowel function, bladder function, temperature regulation, uh, cardiovascular control. All of these sorts of cures are now becoming more and more a reality. Uh, obviously, it's still in the research phase. It's, it's not ready for prime time quite yet. You've got to make sure first and foremost that it's safe, that it's not going to cause any problems down the road uh, and that it is truly effective and they figured out the best way to deliver it. But uh, it's a very exciting area of research and we're working hard to bring it to Canada because right at this moment, there's no research being done in Canada in this area. Do you care if you ever walk again? Here's the thing is I can walk. Well, I wouldn't call it walking. I can stand up and take steps. Okay. Um, because of the, the nature of my injury, my left side works quite well, so I can sort of stand up. The thing is, is I use a wheelchair. I, you know, I could use a walker or crutches and try to get around that way, but I realized early on that a wheelchair was a much more efficient way to get around. Mm -hmm. um, the only times that I actually need to stand up is if I'm reaching something from a high shelf 
or if I want to do a really tricky transfer into a completely inaccessible bathroom. Apart from that, I don't really ever need to walk. I can manipulate like 99% of my environment from my wheelchair. Um, with that being said, hell yeah, I'd love to go climb the gross grind or kick a soccer ball again. So much so that I signed up for a spinal stimulation research trial down in Seattle to see if it would help me. Um, you know, and, and it took a little while to get down there and get it all sorted out. And I was down there in January and February and March. The research protocol was a 16 week research study. So eight weeks of baseline training where you do all this standing and walking training without any stimulation. And then eight weeks of doing the exact same training, but with stimulation. And the pandemic hit and the border closed when I was seven and a half weeks in. So I was about a week away from actually getting to experience what spinal stimulation felt like firsthand. Wow. <laughs> How's that irony? How do our listeners get involved with Praxis and some of the research initiatives? Yeah. So you certainly can go onto our um, website and sign up to our newsletters. Um, you know, my email's right on there. It's uh, jcherneski at praxisinstitute.org. Um, shoot me an email and let me know what you're interested in, what you want to get involved in. I'd be happy to find a way to bring you into, into the work that we do. Um, you know, uh, I would certainly suggest you sign up with some of the community organizations across the country, SCI Alberta, or sorry, SCI BC, and there's similar organizations right across the country, Alberta, Manitoba, um, even in Quebec and New Brunswick, they have organizations and there's other ones all around the world. We, we work with them all the time. Um, definitely a good idea to get on their mailing lists and be a part of what they're doing because I'm sure they'll provide some opportunities as well. Um, if you're looking to participate in particular trials, um, we created a, a tool called sci-trials.org, um, and that's a really handy website that will show you all the trials that are going on all around the world specific to spinal cord injuries. So it's a really easy way to navigate and find trials in case you're interested in getting involved and, and helping to support the science and, and provide your, your life and your body and your experience life life experience to, to improve the work that researchers are doing. Um, and I would suggest maybe signing up to NASCIC as well, because NASCIC really does have a, a mandate to uh, to work in research and certainly to, to facilitate research partnerships. And NASCIC, say that again, what does it stand for? It's the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium. Okay. And I believe the website is nasciconsortium.org. Perfect. Hey, I was a bit of a smoker pre-injury, but after my injury, smoking made me feel like pretty bad. My fingers would go tingly, I'd get dizzy, and I just really felt awful. Um, you're a smoker, are, are you not? <laughs> I, do you experience any of this? So uh, I stopped smoking tobacco a few years ago, and I switched oh. over to a nicotine vape. Ah, uh, okay. It's it's a horrible habit, and I really wish I had the mental strength to just stop it entirely. Um, but no, I don't have any neurological or circulatory no. issues as a result of that. No side effects. Not that I'm aware of. I was reading somewhere that you tried 
a lot of different rehabilitation techniques and therapies. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was injured in 1993. Um, seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, and when I was injured, as I said, I, I, you know, I've got a very incomplete injury where my injury is almost sim more similar to a stroke than, than your average spinal cord injury where one side of my body works quite well and the other side, not so much. So my left side has a lot more function than my right side. Um, and so when I was injured, you know, I was going through my initial rehab at GF Strong and they're getting ready to discharge me. And I said, well, you know, looking down and pointing at my legs, I said, well, what about these? Like, you know, can we, can we do a bit of work on that? Because prior to that, it was all upper extremity stuff, you know, feeding and washing and transferring and getting dressed and all that sort of stuff. And they really didn't do any sort of standing and walking therapy or training for me whatsoever. And I said, Oh, fine, whatever. We'll, we'll put you in a, in a standing frame or throw you in some parallel bars. But you know, they didn't really know what to do with me because I wasn't going to be a ready ambulator. You know, I wasn't going to be somebody who could walk around the community without some sort of walking aids. And injuries like that just didn't happen very often. Either you were in a wheelchair or you walked out. There was really no in-between. And so I got frustrated because I wanted to find out what my potential was. I wanted to know if I, if I pushed really hard, maybe I might be able to walk and Maybe that was a good thing. Maybe back in the day, that's what I, I always thought walking was so important. Now, I, I, I'm, it'd be nice, but I, I, it's not a, a be-all, end-all. Um, and so I got bounced around with a bunch of therapists because nobody really knew what to do with me because they were all musculoskeletal physiotherapists. They didn't really have dedicated neurotherapists that knew how to work with complex spinal cord injuries that had that incomplete nature. And they were getting ready to sort of give up on me because they're like, dude, just be happy with your wheelchair and get on with it. Um, and then there was an opportunity that came up. Some researcher or some, sorry, some physiotherapists from the United Kingdom were coming over to Vancouver to teach a different technique to some therapists here. And they needed some people that had disabilities like a spinal cord injury to come in and be sort of models for study. And I thought, hey, well, it sounds like a neat opportunity. Let's give it a shot. Uh, and the technique that they used was called Bobath. Now, Bobath is, is really quite common globally now, but it wasn't at the time. Uh, and it's a very holistic approach to understanding neurological injuries. So in this one week, I would come in, and in the morning, the um, therapists that were taking the course would do their sort of theoretical work. And in the afternoon, they would do the practical application. So I came in in the afternoon, and these student therapists would work on trying to apply these learnings on me uh, and see how that would work. And then at the end, the, the tutors would go around and spend five minutes with each of us and show the students how to apply what they were trying to, to learn. And I can tell you, I learned more in that five-day course about my body and how it worked than I had in the previous two or three years. And I was like, hey, this is great. I had to get more of this. And I said, so who's the, the, the expert in Canada? And they're like, there really are no experts in Canada. I'm like, okay, so what do I got to do? And they're like, well, if you want to get this, you're going to need to come to the UK. And so that's what I did. You know, I, I finished up high school at the time. I was only 16 when I got injured. So as soon as I finished high school, I hopped on a plane and I moved to the UK. And I lived there for the better part of four years working with these therapists to try to maximize my, my recovery as best I could. 
Uh, I have to say, I, I learned a hell of a lot. You know, I think my, I came out of that way better than I did going in. Did I learn how to walk and did I walk away from the wheelchair and the spinal cord injury? No, not at all. Still use a wheelchair, but uh, you know, I learned what I was capable of and I, my body and my health is it's been in such a better state ever since then. I also traveled around the world. I went to India and tried Ayurvedic therapy. I, you know, tried some various holistic things. I've tried acupunctures and Tai Chi's and Reiki and you name it. You know, I think, I think most of us that have had a spinal cord injury have tried all the, all the, the crazy witch doctor solutions that people have come up with. But uh, yeah, still anything, using the word. Anything you wish you hadn't? No, I don't think so. I didn't, uh, I didn't try anything dangerous. You know, I didn't try. I was lucky enough that I was injured before the stem cell conversation had come along. The number of people I know that went to India or China or Panama or even down to the United States to get stem cells, it's terrifying. And I can tell you, I know pretty much every major spinal cord injury researcher in the world. I know all the research that's going on in stem cells. And I can tell you to this date, I have not heard of a single person who has gained any true meaningful benefit from functional recovery from stem cells. Not to say that there's not very exciting stuff right on the, the cusp, but there's stuff that's in trial right now that could, but I can tell you it's not there yet. Um, I do know of a lot of people that traveled overseas to get stem cells, uh, and the lucky ones, the ones that got, got the most out of it, only lost a lot of money. Yeah. The ones that are less lucky, yeah, no. I wouldn't be putting foreign bodies in my in my system. There's a, I know of a, a couple of people that went to Portugal and they got nasal stem cells injected into their spine and a few years later they saw mucosa growths on their spinal cord. I know another individual who went to China um, and now has developed uh, cancer and the biopsy showed that the DNA of that cancer was not his own. Um, so yeah, I would not recommend going oh, to any of the snake oil salesmen anywhere in the world. That's, that's just when I think about that too, like, you know, I, I'm sure everybody goes, oh, wow, exciting. When I, when I was injured, they told me it was just two more years and trials would be started and people would be walking. And, you know, I, I was told later that that was a ploy to raise money. Um, that they would make a big release when they wanted to try to raise more research money to try to encourage people to uh, to donate and make it happen. But I guess that's obviously not what, what Praxis is doing in any way. But I can tell you that anybody who tells you that this new intervention or this new curative therapy will be available in this number of hours or years or time frame, they're lying. They don't know. Yeah. You know, um, there's brilliant minds all around the world that are working so hard to bring these um, new interventions to, to, to reality. But will it be in five years, 10 years, 50 years? No, nobody can say for certain. And if somebody does try to tell you that, they're lying. Um, what I can tell you is there's amazing stuff happening all around the world. 
I just uh, was watching a, a video that some good friends of mine here in Vancouver just shared with me of a new exoskeleton that they're working on. And it is amazing. It can move in ways that no other exoskeleton in the world can do. It can go upstairs, it can go up and down ramps, it can turn in place, it can turn in arcs, it can crouch down and pick things up. There was an even, even a video of her sidestepping while throwing a ball back and forth with another person. Will it be ready in a year, two years, five years? I don't know, but it's amazing to see this technology coming to, to fruition. And I would posit to say that, you know, exoskeletons are another cure. That's another tool that can improve the lives of people with spinal cord injury because you get up into a standing position and you're walking around. Well, first of all, you're moving around a lot more freely and you can access areas that wheelchairs can't. The chances of a pressure injury on your butt are significantly reduced. You know, it's much better for the human anatomy to be in a standing position than a seated position. So there's a lot of benefits to, to devices like that. Um, you know, and the work's ongoing. You know, what the time frame is, I don't think anybody can say, but I will tell you that, you know, people are working hard, myself included. So like AI is probably going to have like a massive change on the technology, like really evolve it. Yeah, and say machine learning is definitely a tool we're in incorporating into our work. You know, we have a, a huge um, registry. So we have 30 sites right across Canada called the Rick Hansen Spinal Cord Injury Registry. It's been going for about 15 years now. It's one of the largest databases of its kind in the world. And we collect data on every new traumatic spinal cord injury that happens across the country. And we track people from the very moment they're injured right through to hospital, through surgery, through their whole acute care, through the rehab stay, and as they move out into the community. And it's a huge amount of data. We've got well over 7,000 people in that data with thousands and thousands of data points for each individual. Um, can we sift through all that data and come up with meaningful answers to every question? No, there's, there's not enough time of all the people in the world. But using machine learning can certainly help with that. When you talk about spinal cord stimulation and all the various stimulation parameters, you know, the current implanted epidural spinal stim arrays that people are using have 16 electrodes in them. Um, and these are, you know, really in, in my mind, they're quite primitive because they're not even designed for neuromodulation. They're designed for pain suppression. They're just being repurposed to try to improve function of people with spinal cord injury. Some of the new ones that people are looking to design have as much as 264 electrodes. So you think of all the various stimulation parameters that you could create, you know, with all the various amplitudes, wavelengths, um, and voltages, um, as well as all those various stimulator uh, positions, there's no way the human body or the human brain can calculate what those are. You need to use artificial intelligence. You need to use machine learning to calculate it. And, and these are some of the tools that we're, we're trying to bring into, into reality. I know you love to travel. How how long have you been traveling? Oh, man. Well, the first trip I did after my spinal cord injury was when I moved to the UK. You know, I was 19 years old, and I was a young man with a C7 tetraplegic spinal cord injury. And I said, I'm moving to the UK. And my mom said, well, I should come with you. And I said, you know, mom, nah, I don't think I'm taking my mom with me. So, well, you should take your brother then. 
nah, I think I got this. I, I was so ignorant. I was so naive. But I did. I moved. This is, you know, pre-internet age, you know, and, and I had a guidebook and I knew where I was going. And, I, you know, I was communicating via fax to the, to the therapist. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to England. So, um, and, yeah, there was a lot of hurdles along the way. Like, you know, you figured it out. Um, and in that, since that time, you know, I've traveled all over Europe. I've been to Australia multiple times, all around the United States. I've been to Southeast Asia, India, you know, places like Cambodia and Laos, so China, Japan. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been lucky to, to be able to travel quite a bit. Um, and through the work that I do now with Praxis, you know, because it's such a global concerted effort, you know, I, I travel to meetings and meet with, with researchers and, and experts all around the world all the time. Obviously not right now because of the pandemic, but yeah, quite a bit. Did you like uh, living in the UK? I did, yeah. It was brilliant. It's, I think travel is so important for, for human growth, you know, and not just travel within your own country or within, you know, similar cultural areas, but, you know, get lost. Go into dangerous, well, not dangerous places, but go into unfamiliar places. Go into places where they don't speak the same language as you. Go into Put yourself in circumstances where, you know, you don't know what's going on. I think probably one of the most amazing experiences I ever had, I was in Thailand and I rented a car and I drove from Bangkok down to, um, uh, oh, geez, what's the name of that big resort down there? It's, it was like a two and a half day drive because I, I only drove like four hours a day because I wanted to check out the sites and whatnot. And I stopped in this tiny little town. I still remember the name of it. It's called Prachuapkirikan. And it's just this tiny little fishing village, you know, with, you know, the old buildings that were made out of teak and beautifully intricately carved. And there were no tourists. In fact, I don't think I met a single person that spoke English. And I didn't speak any Thai at all. But, you know, I stayed there for about a day and a half. And it was amazing. I got to meet a bunch of people and had such an amazing experience you know, in a place where there was basically no accessibility and no English and yeah, you just, you figure it out, you know, we're getting lost in the back streets of New Delhi in India. Like, you know, can you tell me of a more enlightening and amazing experience to, to get to know people where they live, where there's no other tourists have ever been? It's pretty awesome. Wow. Did you have any like, holy shit moments where, Things all just went sideways on you or something? All the time, yeah. That, that, that happens quite a bit. Um, can't think of any that were particularly harrowing or, or particularly dangerous. I do remember going into Phnom Penh in Cambodia. Um, so I was with a friend of mine, and we flew into Phnom Penh. This is, ooh, say 15 years ago or so and uh you know we got on the, the motorbike taxis so they have this setup there where they have a guy on a little moped and then they've got almost like a little like a carriage or a chariot that it tows behind and it's kind of funny because they have like a ball joint axle where it attaches right on the back of behind the seat of the driver and I always thought if you ever got a rear ender accident that, that ball joint's going right through the spine of the the guy driving the motorbike, but that's besides the point. Um, so anyways, we're, we're driving into town from the airport 
And I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these security guards at every building and every parking lot. And they're all walking around with like automatic machine gun weapons, like AK-47s and M16s. I'm like, holy crap, this is a bit heavy, right? So, you know, we're stopped at a bit of a traffic jam. And I, I say to the driver, I'm like, man, there's a lot of people with guns here, right? He just reaches down under his shirt, pulls out his, you know, shiny chrome handgun. He goes, yeah, everybody's got one. And I'm thinking, man, this is, this is a bit different than, than living in North Vancouver. So, you know, you, you, you see stuff like that. But, you know, it's just the world is very different outside our borders. And it's, it's exciting and it can be dangerous. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's very much worth exploring because you're going to learn things about yourself. And you're going to learn things about humans and human nature um, that you never would if you just stay in your, in your own neighborhood. Most accessible place? In the world? Yeah. Vancouver. No doubt about it. Hands down? Well, Vegas is, is pretty amazing as well. You know, down in the United States, they've got their um, Americans with Disability Act, and, and Vegas is hugely accessible, super easy to get around. Um, Disney resorts are also really, really good. But in terms of, you know, a city where people actually live in and, and uh, as a place to live, you know, with the, the advocacy that Rick Hansen has done and amazing leaders in our communities like Sam Sullivan, Stephanie Cadu, Michelle Stilwell, you know, we got some real absolute global superstars here in, in Vancouver and in greater Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, and yeah, the accessibility in Vancouver is, is, is far none. Um, I couldn't think of a more accessible place in the world. There's other places that are, that are quite good places like Sydney, Australia, you know, um, I even found places like Barcelona to be surprisingly accessible. So, you know, but the thing is, is you get into some of these places, like I mentioned earlier, going to Cambodia, you know, I went to go check out Siem Reap. So that's um, Angkor Wat, the, the ancient Hindu temple in the jungles of, of Cambodia. Accessibility there is zero. It is absolutely zero. There, there is no accessibility whatsoever, but I wanted to check it out, you know? And so I started talking to some of the tour guides and whatnot and trying to figure it out. And they got a can-do attitude. They're like, yeah, we'll make this happen. And so, you know, they're like, let's go. We'll go tomorrow morning. Let's figure it out. So I wake up the next morning and I met up with these two guys and they grabbed two bamboo poles and they slipped them underneath of my wheelchair. And they literally picked up these, my, myself in my wheelchair and they used these bamboo poles to basically carry me through this jungle to check out this ancient temple. So you're way up in the air. Yeah, yeah, I felt like Cleopatra or something, you know, or, you know, being in India, you know, and, you know, I think the people that live in these countries, they know that their countries aren't accessible and they know that they don't have the resources to make them accessible. So they feel that they want you to explore their country and enjoy their country because they're so proud of their country and their culture that they will go way out of their way to ensure that you get that experience. You know, I remember being in this tiny village up in the Punjab in, the, in, in India. And, you know, we're, I was with some friends who were of Indian heritage and they were visiting family and friends. And me and my brother decided to go for a little walk around this tiny little village in, in the Punjab. And we went out into the sort of town square of this little village. And we, you know, all of a sudden there's these two white guys and one of them's in a wheelchair in the middle of this village where they'd never seen a foreigner before. And I can tell you, there was a lot of interest. 
And next thing you know, we're, we're talking, we got the whole village coming out and we're talking to everybody and everybody wants to know who we are and what we're doing there. And next thing you know, we're doing a tour around this village. We've got 300 people walking around with us and we're getting invited into all the, the, the elders of the village, the doctor and the mayor and all the important people were invited into their house, have a, a, glass, a cup of tea and a bite to eat. And it's just, you know, people are welcoming and they're amazing and you're going to have amazing experiences. You're going to have some tough ones, you know, you know, if your bowels decide to let go on a train in, you know, in France, you're, you're going to have a tough time, but you'll figure it out. Sometimes you just got to shit your pants and get back out there. That's it. That's it. What daily habits do you practice that have made the most difference in your health and well-being? I think being mindful, you know, I deal with a lot of spasticity uh, and uh, I've been in neuropathic pain and I find that when I get anxious, when I get stressed, when there's too much going on, my spasticity goes through the roof. Um, and so I have to remember myself to think inwardly, to be calm, to just know that my brain has the ability to either positively affect my body or negatively affect my body. And if I think about how I do things, it tends to get better. I also uh, really watch my diet. I'm really aware of uh, inflammatory foods. I find that lots of sugars, um, I find dairy doesn't react with me very well. Breads and pastas, I try to, try to eat a fairly low inflammatory diet, low glycemic diet. I find that helps a lot. Uh, and just stretching and postural exercises, I find, are, are also really important. Here's a toughie. Do you listen to podcasts? Not as much as I should, you know, um, just, I, I, I gotta say my, you know, I, I love my work and I probably, you know, if you ask my partner, Terry, um, Terry Thorson, for those of you who know her, she's an amazing human being and she's always reminding me that I work too much, but you know, when you love something you do, it's, it's not work. <laughs> uh, and also, you know, my partner, Terry is also tetraplegic uh, and we take care of Terry's young son, Lucian, who's now 10 years old. So, you know, you've got that balance of family life, maintaining your health and, and working too many hours. It, finding the time for podcasts can sometimes be a bit difficult. And what, maybe I know the answer to this one. For what in your life do you feel most grateful for? That's, that's a big question. Um, I'd have to say first and foremost, Terry Thorson. Um, she is an absolutely amazing human being. And I feel lucky every single day that she still loves me. Uh, and your, your eyes are welling up. Huh. Wonderful. That's good to see that, man. I love that. <laughs> Do you have any, any aha disability moments? Um, well, I can tell you that things are never the same. Things change. The number of people that I meet that are complaining to me about their bowel program or how they're managing their bladder or what's going on with their equipment. And then I ask them, well, what are you doing? How are, what are you using? How are you managing that? And they say, well, I'm doing it exactly how I learned when I went to GF in 1984. And I just look at them and I shake my head and you go, you know, things have moved on since 1984. That's, it's 26 years ago. We have all sorts of new techniques and technologies and 
medicines, you know, there's, there's a whole plethora of things that you can be doing differently that'll make your life easier or better. You know, I remember when they came up, I, I think I mentioned it in your, your pre-questionnaire about a drug called Mirbetric uh, or Mirabegron. You know, I remember when I was first injured, trying to use, you know, Ditropan and all those various other uh, bladder meds, and they were horrible. I hated them. My mouth was always dry. I felt like I'd just been smoking a huge joint all day long. I had dry mouth like constantly. And I was tired and my muscles were weak and I could not stand it. And so I stopped using any of them. And, you know, I used to use a, a leg bag, like a condom catheter, because my bladder will, I, my bladder just voids whenever it wants to. Um, and over a period of time, I learned how to sense my bladder and tell when I needed to go. So I don't actually need to use um, any sort of catheter or condom catheter or anything. I just get a sense and I have to make a beeline to the bathroom and take a pee. And man, the number of times I, I pissed myself because the warning that I got from my bladder was like, you got to pee. You better find a bathroom in the next three and a half minutes. And, you know, you're out going around doing things. It sucked. And I couldn't drink beer because you drink beer, you may as well just be sitting in the toilet drinking the beer because you're going to be pissing so frequently. And then, and then I found out about Mirbetric, which has been around for about 10 years. I think I've been using it for about eight of them. Um, and it stopped my bladder from hyperactive being hyperactive. Um, it didn't cause me dry mouth or fatigue. I think one of the main side effects of it is it actually elevates blood pressure a notch or two, which for somebody whose blood pressure is always low, I thought, hey, that's kind of good to get my blood pressure even a touch higher. I think if you've got like chronic high blood pressure, it might not be the best for you, but for somebody with tetraplegia or, or high thoracic injury where you're likely to have lower blood pressure than normal, that might be something to check out. I don't want to sound like an advertisement for it. They, you know, I don't, I don't receive any royalties from that company. Um, but for me, it was a game changer because now I don't have to worry about my bladder going crazy on me all the time and getting super dysreflexic when I didn't have to, when I had to pee. John, it's really been amazing talking with you. Can you leave me with some words of wisdom? Yeah. Thank you. It's been, been great talking to you too, Brian. And thank you so much for inviting me on your show and giving me the chance to, to share what I, what I feel and what I think I know. Um, I would say the big one I would say is to anybody listening to this that has a spinal cord injury, get involved. You know, this research that we're doing, it matters to you. Uh, matters to me. And there's a chance to change your world. But if you sit back and wait for it to happen, it might get there. Might do. But if you run towards that research, remember, I, I think about my coach when I played baseball when I was a kid. And he always said, you know, you're standing out in left field and the ball gets hit out to you. If you sit there and wait, the ball might get to you. But if you run towards it, you're going to get there a lot faster. And that's the same thing with spinal cord research. If you sit and wait for these new curative interventions to come, they might get there. But if you get involved and you share your knowledge and you help push them forward, it's going to get there faster. John, thanks for sharing your compassion and your, your passion, I mean, and your vulnerability. And uh, that's, that's wonderful. I, I think there's so much more that we could talk about. So I'd, I'd really love to talk to you again. Yeah, it'd be awesome.
as I said, I, I know a little bit about a lot of things and I'm happy to talk about them all. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Thanks to John for joining us on Quad Life. For more information on Praxis and some of the research and trials happening, visit praxisinstitute.org, S-C-I-R-E-Project.com forward slash community and SCITrials.org. We will have these links posted on the Quad Life Facebook page. That's it for the show. Don't forget, shit happens, and when it does, just shit your pants and get back out there.